hello. Wait, <laughs> I totally forgot what I say. <laughs> Bodes well. I uh, love it. Why don't you tell the people what this podcast we'll again. is? Okay, no, let's again. Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And this is This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, we're talking about Henry IV, Part One. through things a little bit at the end of last week because I have a newfound determination to not let our episodes be longer than an hour and 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> a resolution which uh, we will surely break. Um, surely. Listener and scholar Rachel Chung has promised us a prize if we come in under two hours. So uh, for, this, the, for this particular for this, play? Uh, for this specific play. So that's what we're working towards is to wow. win a prize by coming in under two hours. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Okay. Um, but we didn't really talk about why, how we made this slightly bonkers transition from The Winter's <laughs> Tale to Henry IV Part One, um, and also <laughs> why we chose to specifically just do Part One. So yes. I thought we could discuss that very quickly here at the beginning. Um, I think that my thinking in suggesting it was last week we talked a lot about the sort of lost queer childhood that is mm. present in many Shakespeare plays and is very present, we argued, in mm. The Winter's Tale. Um, right. And I think Henry IV Part One specifically is sort of the real-time version of that. This is mm. Prince Hal's queer childhood <laughs> in certain mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. It's the lost queer youth recorded as its ending. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So like, we'll get retrospective about it in Henry V in the future, but like now it's mm. happening. Right. And that was my thinking. Um, and as think, for- oh, Yeah, no, go, go for it. No, I think that's good thinking. I mean, in terms of why, because we thought to ourselves, is it merciful or is it cruel to only choose Henry IV part one and to save part two for the future? But I think we came to the conclusion that part one is- in its own structure, in its own self-contained structure as a play, so gay that it would do sh it would do short shrift to the gay of part one to have to include part two, and having a little bit more elbow room would be beneficial. Also, there's just the naked fact that we would not be able to talk about a combined Henry Four Parts One and Two for anything less than like three full hours like people would die <laughs> like worlds would end right it's gonna be a two-part episode anyway at that point but also be. I mean yeah. I just personally I have a very uh, strong and devout um contrarian feeling that part one and part two are two completely distinct plays that ought yeah. to be let stand alone including part two more often and I think that to try and discuss them structurally and sort of character-wise as a unit is like not yeah. real. They're not two halves of a whole. They're two separate plays that are mm -hmm. in some ways sequential. Yeah. Yeah. And I think tonally, you know, that the play is totally, I'm of that opinion. I feel like atmospherically they're, they live in very different places and, you know, yeah. so yeah, I mean, and in terms can, of the gay, they'll have different conversations surrounding them as well. Yeah. And we can obviously go into that a little more maybe someday when we do Henry IV part two. 
One um, day. <laughs> someday. But for now, it's part one. Um, I know the histories are perhaps less familiar to people. So thank you for sticking with us. I think, mm. I mean, we can get into this in a moment. We both wholeheartedly recommend this play. Um, but if you haven't read it, we will try to do a little more plot recap than we usually do. But the sort yes. of brief overview is that uh, this is the story, confusingly, on the whole of King Henry <laughs> IV's son, um, <laughs> Prince Hal, who is a dissolute young man who is letting down the kingdom's hopes for the future um, in the sort of wake of a period of political strife. He's besties with a thief slash knight slash general man about town <laughs> Falstaff, and they sort of get up to hijinks together. Um, but as a sort of group of Northern families led by the Percys, who are always mm. causing trouble in English history, um, especially the young and dashing Harry Percy called Hotspur, <laughs> a rebellion which brings the two Henrys, Prince Hal, Harry Hotspur, into literary foilship together, one might say, uh, <laughs> slash mortal enemy ship, culminating yeah. in, of course, an inevitable clash on the battlefield. It's mm -hmm. a great play. It's a great play. Now, before we really dive in and do what we always do, I do feel we may owe the listener, a, should we come clean about our personal relationship to this play? Yes. <laughs> Perhaps we should. Um, I mean, we have referenced before, you know, I think in passing plays that we have worked on as part of the discussion, but this one, it must be said, we personally together have worked on it three different times over the past 10 years. Yes. And yes, I, I also, yeah, I mean, it's my, my master's dissertation I mean, yes. no my master's and my phd dissertations yes. are both on the history plays so this is my favorite genre and i think um mm. yeah we'll do our best not to get too <laughs> deep in the weeds without explanation but yeah, yeah this is a genre that is near and dear to both of us yes yes it's a home place for sure that's enough of that um let's dive in to act one mm -hmm. so i think the thing that this play, this play is so elegantly structured. And I think that's why one of the reasons I think, as we alluded to, it's very frustrating when people <laughs> insist on kind of ruining that by tacking part two onto the end. Um, yeah. But we get set up really beautifully with sort of laying out in a series of scenes, our three Henrys, um, mm -hmm. Prince Hal, Hotspur, who's we'll call him Hotspur. He's also named Henry and yes. King Henry as mm -hmm. these sort of comparative, very explicitly like comparative images of masculinity. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because in terms of act one specifically, I mean, maybe we'll have more thoughts about Henry, how Henry himself comes across in the, in the opening. Cause I have some, I have a lot of love for Henry, but in terms of the lads, um, literary foil ship being set up, as you said, very elegantly in the introduction, we've been thinking so much in these conversations about how people are spoken about before they enter. And I feel like this is, this play is one of like the greatest examples of that. 
because it genuinely begins with Henry for Hal's father making a direct comparison between the two of them that paints like a fairly vivid picture of both Hotspur and Hal. And I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but literally goes so far as to say, I wish the other one was my son. Like the comparative is made so explicit in like act one, scene one. It's sort of hard to, you go forward knowing that that's what the play's about, basically. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we need to go into it later. Why don't you go into it now? Oh, well, um, I mean, the, the to set up the context, I suppose, um, you know, the play begins with Henry the King um, being given news of Hotspur's kind of latest victories on behalf of the crown up in the north where he's fighting the Scots and some stuff. And uh, Hotspur's reputation as a warrior and that that stamp of man, that brand of manliness, you know, goes before him everywhere. And, you know, that scene contains the text um, when he's talking about how Northumberland Hotspur's dad is so lucky that Hotspur is his son, we have the text, a son who is the theme of honor's tongue amongst a grove, the very straightest plant, which I love, who is sweet fortune's minion and her pride, whilst I, by looking on the praise of him, see riot and dishonor stain the brow of my young Harry. And so it automatically sort of comes home to, you know, this, this young man is shaming my son by being so much better at all of the sort of graces of masculinity that our society sort of prizes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But what I think is so interesting is that like, even within this act, we get these images of the two of them set up by Mm -hmm. Henry in this scene and kind of neither of them turn out to be totally accurate. Right. Um, Which is really interesting because yeah to spend so much time building up a like image of two characters only for that to kind of in fairly subtle ways be proved Mm. untrue is Mm. a really interesting sort of I mean it's an important sort of theme of the play the idea and I mean because Prince Hal's whole thing is like yes I'm acting like a screw-up but actually it's a plan and I'm going to be a better king later because of this. Mm -hmm. And that is something he sort of reveals to the audience in a soliloquy after his first scene in which he like, you know, wakes up hungover in a tavern. Um, And so that is like kind of thematically the question uh, that Mm -hmm. he's certainly asking is like, can you really trust people's, even like people's perceptions of other people, even like the the rumors that spread about other people, the idea of other Mm -hmm. people have, how can you really know who they are inside? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really core question of the play, particularly around Hal. It's interesting because part of the ways in which they're set up as contrasting, it's it brought me back to our continued conversation in this podcast about seeming, about about the queerness of seeming one thing and being another. Mm. And that's that's explicitly, you know, we talked about it with Iago about how, you know, that's coded as usually as a very feminine position or a sort of a subversive position in an, an unmasculine position. And Hal's whole thing is tipping the hand to the audience at the end of that scene that like BT dubs, I'm here see, seeming one thing and being another. But what's interesting is I feel like the play sort of continues to orbit the question of like, yeah, you are seeming one thing, but there are so many layers of performances for different people involved. What even is the self underneath those performances? And do you even know? 
you know, is I feel like one of the kind of, like, is there a sort of stable identity under all the seeming or is there not? Which I think is why Hal is such a like opaque and interesting character. Yeah. And I think that the other kind of element of that that I'm interested in at the beginning is the way that if Hal is all seeming, Hotspur's problem is he cannot seem Exactly right. Yeah, he's all being. (laughs) And what's interesting is in his first scene, he sort of gets accused accurately of boring kind of, you know, the king asks him to send some prisoners. He's like, no, I'm not going to send them. And then like, there's, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Um, But he sort of has this incredible opening scene where he like kind of reenacts this argument he had with a courtier and like basically Mm -hmm. just cannot behave diplomatically like cannot kind of say the proper polite things he can only say what he's actually thinking and that's like his recurring problem that a lot of people point out to him is a problem and I think that's what is interesting for our purposes that that is as feminine as the seeming is in a sort of early modern sense like when his Mm -hmm. uncle is yelling at him for you know having insulted the king to his face he's like you know you're breaking into this woman's mood like to be Mm -hmm. overly talkative as we've discussed before is gendered feminine and to be unable Mm. to control your anger and control your feelings which is I think what I was kind of alluding to when I was saying that despite the way that Hotspur is set up in the first Mm -hmm. description of him as this paragon when we actually meet him he sort of falls short of that ideal in his personal conduct in like very striking ways 100 percent, 100 percent. and it's not only such a like technicolor specific contrast between the two of them it also because because it's like okay the one of them is so good at seeming is he even capable of authenticity and the other is like he's so authentic is he even functional in the world and it's like each of their two different problems but what you just said about Hotspur reminded me of our conversation about Macbeth mm. um and some other people we've some other men we've talked about before too that the idea that like he's set up as being really proficient on the battlefield, but that doesn't mean that he's actually good at being a man in society and doing the other things that men are supposed to do, like have a domestic life and be, and be, you know, be in relationship to the political landscape. And like, yeah, he can only do one thing, which is sort of what we said about Macbeth as well. Right. And he does it really, really well. Yeah, he does it really well. (laughs) And I think it's, I do, you, you mentioned before, um, that maybe we'd want to talk about the third Henry of this mm. scene, which is the yes. king. And I do yes. find, I was really struck by the way that throughout this act, and we begin, the opening line of the play is, so shaken as we are, so wan with care. And it's one of those ones where it's like, the we is both the king and the country, because he sort of goes mm. on to personify like, oh, we've been sort of shaken with civil war, because it mm. happened. Um And then later when at the beginning of this scene where Hotspur sort of goes off on a rant, King Henry describes himself as, oh, I've been too cold and temperate and apt to stir at these indignities. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he says, I'll rather be, you know, smooth as oil and soft as young down. And like he, he also describes himself in like these really feminized Mm -hmm. terms. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have to credit an article I read whose author has just flitted out of my mind (laughs) but I will either remember it or put it in the show notes but Mm. you know that really highlighting to me that like when we're thinking in early modern terms and sort of humoral terms you know like Mm. the four humors and the way they are gendered as well um King Henry himself is also very feminized Mm -hmm. um so there's sort of a 
I, I find it interesting in like the kind of models that Hal is being held up to and found wanting by like yeah. the king, his, you know, primary rival of his own generation. Mm. Both are not really living up to the standard mm. either. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. The, you know, because part in that chunk that you just quoted of Henry's, he also has the line, you know, I have been cold, et cetera, but he has the line, I will from henceforth rather be myself. And mm. so in a way that also sets up like, is the play also about Henry sort of trying to go on some sort of quest for authenticity. Like, what does it mean for the king to say, I will from henceforth rather be myself? Like, if the king starts the play by sort of implying that he has a lost self, like he hasn't been doing himself right, you know, and is sort of going and is, is trying to mend his relationships or like be harder on his former allies. Because it's interesting, the Hotspur is surrounded by his father, Northumberland, who matters a little less, and his schemey scheme uncle, Worcester, who has one of our favorite lines ever to Henry, where he says, we were the first and dearest of your friends. And like, there is a sort of original sin in the generation hovering above Hal and Hotspur, which is these broken friendships between this older generation of men. And it's interesting, just sort of before we leave act one behind, to me that like, was in the scene that Hotspur hit Hotspur's first big scene that temper tantrum comes out of Henry banishing Worcester from the court basically and Worcester's whole political position basically being set up as we used to love you and you promised to reward us and then you betrayed our love and and now we feel unsafe here and like I don't know it's an interesting thing because these ruptures between these relationships of these these other men is sort of what sets up the political context in which the rebellion happens. And then Hal and Hotspur are set up as rivals and forced to square off because of what the grownups feel about each other. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I think it's, I think um, that's a really interesting kind of line to draw because I think that is really, especially later in the play, very much in Worcester's language about like, we will yeah. remind you who you are, um, mm -hmm. you know, like you've forgotten You've forgotten where you came from, man. Um, you forgot your roots. To say, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it is a sort of key. I mean, this is like the difficulties of the history plays is the way they sort of do and don't refer back to one another and refer to like historical events they don't depict. But like, I think mm -hmm. the kind of status quo we begin with is that King Henry usurped the throne. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that more later yeah. but and the problem is that Worcester Northumberland helped him do that so yeah mm -hmm. I think that there's also that's something I became really aware of when I was working on a production of it before the pandemic what like three years ago now of yeah. the kind of the closeness and the intimacy of those relationships and I yeah. actually think that's maybe something that gets brought out in our kind of queer scented terms uh <laughs> a little more in part two totally yeah, totally. But mm, mm -hmm, interesting. And so we set up the boys and should we, before we kind of flow out of act one, we do also meet Falstaff in yes. act one. And Hal's yeah. sort of merry band of buddies. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, and points, uh, you know, yeah, the whole <laughs> tavern crew. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So yes. And we also meet Falstaff, who is obviously uh, mm. one of the most famous roles in Shakespeare. I do think it's interesting that like 
So Hal's first scene, him and Falstaff wake up together mm-hmm. in a tavern, I think is the implication. It's not clear. Or like the prince's rooms, I think is the sort of Victorian stage yes. direction we're given somewhere that's not the palace. Right. And productions love to show that Hal's a bad boy by having him wake mm-hmm. up with like one, two, three, like women. Like I remember um, in the very, very good Dominic Drumgoal Globe Productions. Um, yes. It's like he sort of comes out of the trap door and it's like a clown car. There's Always. just like more yeah. and more women coming out after him. I think it's only two. But, you know, it's just like, and that's, I just think it's very interesting that the shorthand mm-hmm. for Hal's dissolute nature is often too open with showing him having yes. illicit sex. In the women. kind of aftermath of sex. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something he never does or ever really talks about doing, actually. No, not really. I mean, I was thinking about that too, because we've actually referenced that trope at other earlier times in this podcast of sort of as ways that productions prove that people are licentious in some kind of way. And it's interesting because the only dialogue that I think is ever exchanged in the play is like a j- about it is like a joke that Falstaff and Hal have about Mistress Quickly who runs the tavern basically and like it's sort of never she's like the older sort of hostess of the tavern and I don't think it's ever clear you know that it doesn't feel like that's a that could just as easily be a joke with no substance at all you know and it's the only kind of like um, sexual sort of titillation that gets attached to Hal by Falstaff at any time. Yeah, really. I think we get a lot of Falstaff being sort of yes. suggested to be fooling around with the hostess in various ways. But yes. yeah, I mean, it's, I do, I want to, I have, as I've said, I like to draw mm. lines between the history plays because I think they too often get treated as this unbroken mm-hmm. sequence that is kind of not a mesh. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, isn't accurate and isn't a helpful way to think mm-hmm. about them. However, there is an amazing exchange at the end of Richard II, <laughs> which is the play that comes before this one, um, where King Henry has just been crowned and he's sort of begins what will become a refrain in this play where he's like, where is my son? Um, And Hotspur shows up and is like, I found him in a brothel. And he told me, if you make him come to this tournament that you're planning, he's going to wear a whore's glove as his favor. And basically (laughs) told me to fuck off. And it's a, I mean, interesting in light of what we're saying right now, just Mm. in terms of that is really the only time he gets associated with like kind of, of sexuality or yeah or I mean like and specifically sex work is like one of his vices as it were yeah also like for our purposes what a meeting like what a what a <laughs> what a scene to imagine the two of them I like, know their only known meeting in the like before the Hotspur discovering how in a brothel and being like you're gonna come to this tournament or not yeah 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 like, I mean, I've read that fan fiction <laughs> like legit it's so that's really funny I'm sure it's I'm sure someone's written it well yeah that's actually really funny considering the fact that I'll harp on this sort of later and as we go on just the the fact that I feel like structurally part one in and of itself is so gay because it keeps Hal and Hotspur apart but compared constantly and mutually obsessed on their separate channels until they do meet it's so interesting to imagine them having met at some time in the past 
but in a brothel <laughs> in a brothel specifically yeah. yeah 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 well the only thing I kind of want to feed in about Falstaff and you might have other thoughts as well but like because Hal is sort of constantly positioned on a there's sort of a tug of war happening because Henry for as a constant refrain is like where's my son and the answer is always he's with Falstaff there is this kind of my two dads thing going on and something that I thought a lot about in the queerness scented to borrow your phrase (laughs) reading of this that I did this time there is a lot of joking throughout the play between Falstaff and Hal and kind of about them about this kind of mm, joke question of who's corrupting whom Mm. between the two of them and I paid more attention to it this time than I than I I don't know, maybe expected to, because it's played for laughs, but also it comes up so often that it feels like the play wants you to think about it. And because it feels like the natural, the natural answer is that Falstaff is the corrupting influence because he's this licentious old knight who's all about the appetites and is all drunk all the time. And, you know, and like all of that. And also because he's so much older that it, but he makes so many kind of recurrent jokes and comments about how being the corrupting force on him that it feels like it's worth mentioning. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, I think that that, uh, I was going to bring this up later, but I'll bring it up now. Mm. Um, (laughs) This is going to be a long digression. So there is um, this amazing scholar named Jean E. Howard who writes about the history plays iconically. Um, and wonderfully. And she compares the relationship kind of briefly in an article about something else. She mm. compares the relationship between Hal and Hotspur to a genre called the sort of historical comedies or the historical romances, which Shakespeare didn't write any of exactly. Um, mm-hmm. But it's this sort of genre where monarchs are depicted as falling in love with or sort of becoming entangled with a commoner, usually like a completely fictional character. And the kind of metaphorical shape of that relationship is until he is kind of in control enough to realize that this relationship is inappropriate and like he doesn't Mm. have the right to pursue her simply because he's king, then he will not be a good king and like it's sort of you know she is the the woman is the emblem of England and it's like will he rape England or will he you know become a mature person and treat her gently and be good to her and that's you know the sign right. of that he will mature and become a good king and of course that's what happens by the end of the play and she points out that like that is basically the Falstaff and Hal relationship um and the question of what will become of like this sort of counterpoint to this who is corrupting Mm. whom and I think that's interesting because obviously Mm. in the historical comedies it kind of flows in both directions on one hand it's like oh she's tempting him but on the other hand the real problem is that he's falling for it and like is going to try to assault Mm -hmm. her Mm -hmm. um the counterpoint to the who's corrupting whom is when will you leave me or what will become of me once you're king like their whole first exchange in this first scene where they're talking is basically Falstaff being like what job will I have once you're king yeah and they like joke about that for a while um Mm -hmm. and the sort of looming threat of like what um Mm -hmm. 
yeah, what what how become... sort of accession to power means for Falstaff personally yeah, but, and to the relationship. And also the what, and I think we get into this later in the play, is like what that means to the country yeah. if Falstaff is allowed to accede alongside Hal. Right. Well, it's almost it's a it's a akin to the thing about favorites that you've brought up in a number of discussions about the idea of like the problem with affection, whether sort of sexually tinted or otherwise, is if you can't be trusted not to give the people you love jobs that they don't deserve just because you love them, then you're probably a bad leader, <laughs> you know? And so it does, it is presented as like a threat to the country, the idea of the relationship, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it kind of feels benign in this act, or at yes. least just like silly, but yeah, then silly. when we kind of come to them in act two, it's like they're literally robbing people. And yeah. then, you know, as the sort of threat of war enters into the play more and more fully, Falstaff's response to it is always like, cool, how can I profit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And sort of this kind of menacing underbelly of like, how can I use this relationship to further escape consequences, which is sort of the eternal Falstaff thing of just like, what I would love is to never face any consequences for anything ever. Yeah. (laughs) Which clowns shouldn't. Sure, man. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, yeah, you could be a clown with no consequences, but you can't also be best friends with a prince. Exactly. 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 So, I mean, should we let that flow us right forward? Yeah, into act two, where again, we get a actual, I mean, we get, yeah, two very long scenes of an actual robbery attempt by Falstaff and co, which Hal, again, like sort of treading this line, like allows to go forward in order to sabotage it and pay back the money. Yeah. Um, And then a long, long, long scene of Hal and his buddies Um, hanging out in a tavern where the question of who is Hal's dad gets made just mm -hmm. like stunningly literal. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, it's one of the longest scenes. It's one of the longest uninterrupted scenes in the canon, I think. think So yeah. It's massive. Yeah. You were, you were saying though, you had a thought? No, I mean, I think I just, I do kind of want to dig into, since we keep bringing it up, like Mm. what is queer about the two dads idea? Right. Well, the fact that, again, it makes me think a little bit about our conversation about Macbeth and the idea of the sort of strange magic idea of like masculine replication without women as far off into the future as you can see. And this is notably a world almost entirely without women. There are a couple and we'll talk about them in a big way in act three, but like um, there are no moms. I mean, Mistress Quickly is not a mom equivalent. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there are no women of influence in the kind of sphere of the tavern. The relationship is like holistically Hal and Falstaff alone. And Henry IV has no wife in the play. Anyway, I think historically he did have a living wife, didn't he? Yeah, well, he, yeah, historically his five, he had like seven kids. Um, Their mother (laughs) was dead before he became king, but he remarried a woman who he did not have children with. So he had a living queen at this time. A living stepmother. Yeah. At this time. Right. Who is not in the play. So there is kind of, I mean, I feel like it's the two dads thing is queer because the question of the play is which one of these two men is how going to grow up to be. Mm. And I feel like that's sort of like the whole kind of, that's a huge part of the, I mean, I love this play because I feel like 
it succeeds so elegantly in making the suspense all about character and not about action. Like the action is only to develop character. The suspense is, is Hal going to do what he said he was going to do or not? And like the fact, the warring factors are Percy in his own way, but up above, is he going to become Falstaff or is he going to become Henry IV, basically? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there is just something queer about the idea of like, which of these men are you going to allow to like make you in their image, basically? And there are no women sort of in the room. Yeah, I mean, and I guess like a risk of making it sound weirdly incesty, which isn't really what we mean. Like, as no. you said, there's all these other layers to the Falstaff relationship. Structurally, yes. Falstaff is put in the position of like the woman who is tempting the heir away from his mm-hmm. appropriate life and responsibilities. And um, that, yeah, there's sort of therefore paralleling happening there as well I think but yeah I just wanted to sort of get that out there because we kept saying it yeah like we hadn't quite because Falstaff and Henry never meet it's not like a two dads thing in that way no I mean Falstaff's oh yeah present in act five in a scene with him but they don't they don't speak to each other no I thought yeah exactly there's no yeah they don't connect um but yeah I think that the other kind of thread to pull forward into this act is something you alluded to which is the fact that after we've set up in act one, this comparison between Helen Hotspur in act two is when we realize that they are aware of this comparison and a little bit fixated on it. Yes. It's great. I mean, I feel like charting the how Hotspur thing, if act one is really explicitly making you aware that the world is comparing them. I mean, act two is just where they talk about each other all the time. And it's so funny because it's like, you know, one of the first conversations that, and they bring each other up completely like out of a, like out of a clear blue sky, apropos of nothing. And that's the funniest thing about it. You know I mean? Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this party post robbery in act two is when Hal has the text, you know, um, Ugh, I'm not yet of Percy's mind, the Hotspur of the North, blah, blah, blah. And then he like does a comic impression of him. And it's, I mean, you know, it's one of those great moments where in production, it really gives you the opportunity to show if you want to, that other people are sort of confused about why Hal talks about Hotspur all the time. And one of the things that he does when he's kind of doing this comic impression is partway through Mm -hmm. it, he is told that Falstaff shows up and he says, oh, tell Falstaff to come in I'll play Percy and he'll play my wife (laughs) yeah it's true it's a super weird it's a super weird moment and you know it also sort of um even before Falstaff you know and the rest of the thieves show back up Hal also does a little impression of Lady Percy which is interesting because it gives the audience the impression that not only is Hal super aware of Hotspur but that the Percy's marriage is sort of commonly or at least by him like understood and also a point of like a point worth mentioning and worth parodying like people sort of know about her as well yeah I mean it's a bit weird because like the one line he gives her is as we having just met her the scene before we know is not accurate um not at all but I think that's interesting as well because in light of the thing that I was saying at the beginning about how like Henry's Mm. descriptions of Hotspur and also of his own son kind of turn out not to be quite right in some ways Hal's parody of Hotspur is more accurate to the person that we've actually seen 
Yes, that's true. That's totally true. Uh, I mean, should we quote it? What is that text? He says, um, I am not yet of Percy's mind, the hot spur of the North. He who kills me some six or seven dozen of Scots at a breakfast washes his hands and says to his wife, fie upon this quiet life. I want work. I want work. <laughs> oh, yeah, my sweet right. Harry, quoth she, how many hast thou killed today? <laughs> uh, and then he starts yelling for his horse, which is, to be fair, exactly what happens in the scene before. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. The scene before where we meet Hotspur and his wife, Kate Percy, at home, BT dubs, we're not skipping by accident. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. But it is the first scene where we get to see Hotspur domestically. And yeah, you're right. It's really interesting that the very next thing that happens is Hal doing a really funny and completely unnecessary impression of them domestically. And it is Hotspur basically getting too excited about killing, which is the problem of Hotspur, you know? So, I mean, yeah, it does suggest that even though the play, this play doesn't suggest that they have met and they don't meet until the end, it does suggest that how it is the first accurate impression of Hotspur we've received from anyone. That is really interesting. Yeah. Contrasted by Hotspur buying 150% the reputation that Hal has put forward as like a wastrel yeah. and, you know, yes, a screw up. He has a line yes. in act one where he says, but that I think his father loves him not and would be glad he met with some mischance. I'd have him poisoned with a pot of ale, which is savage. It's so savage. And it's interesting because I, I can't remember if it's in act two or three that Hotspur is, has his mirroring moment of this where he's talking to someone and then randomly, go, you know, has that sword and buckler, Prince of Wales or whatever. They just talk smack about each other to other only vaguely interested parties all the time. It's like compulsive for both of them. It's their yeah. go-to reference. But that thing that you just brought into it of the fact, because this is... I'm glad that we've kind of already seeded in, you know, the sort of weird maelstrom of like rivalry and dependence and love and betrayal and disappointment around Henry and Hal and Hotspur and Falstaff, you know, the whole sort of quadrangle, because this is the fact that Hotspur knows and says out loud in act one that he, he knows that Hal's father doesn't love him is like... <laughs> That's that's not only savage, that's like insane. And I, I've, I will never stop being mind blown by the fact that Shakespeare puts that in this play. And, you know, we've talked before about places where plays feel really seductive to a contemporary audience and to contemporary theater makers because it feels like they're they're seeded in with so much like psychoanalytic realism you know what I mean and the fact that like not only does Hotspur say it he says it two scenes after Henry Four said it you know what I mean of like we it is true that he doesn't like you know or that he he purports to like his disappointment in his son is known but the fact that Hotspur makes use of it and says it out loud and and sort of implicitly knows that like he he knows that he's winning Mm. At having at having sort of greater esteem in the eyes of the king, who is Hal's father, over Hal. And they're both really continue to be aware into act two and into act three, you know, of like the weird seesaw of opinion and also love that they are on and who is up and who is down, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's what's so strange about it to me is that it makes a kind of sense not to get too sort of psychoanalytic mm. about it or like naturalist, yeah. like not to yeah. seek for naturalism, but like it makes sense 
that Hal would be aware of and sort of irritated by Hotspur because your dad is constantly comparing you to other people. And like he is, as Henry sort of sets out and other characters Mm -hmm. say in the opening scene, he is who Hal ought to be. He's doing all the things he ought to do and um, Mm -hmm. is just this sort of shining beacon of of Hal's failures. And it doesn't make as much sense for Hotspur to be equally, if not more, obsessed with how. <laughs> that is true. And it's really interesting. And I think on Hotspur's side only increases as the play goes on. Yes. His kind of fascinations with Hal's choices. And like, yeah, I mean, gosh, there are so many things to unpack here. And I do want to go back to the great point that you made about the Falstaff Henry dad thing that gets so brilliantly explicitly set up in act two, but like, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But while we're on this track, I mean, yeah, it's so, Ooh, I have like a, I I have perennial Hal motivation questions that maybe I'll hold in reserve for later, but (laughs) yeah, the mutual obsession is, is real, but the fact that it's underpinned by not just public opinion, but explicitly the love of a man who is the king, the dad, Mm. that they're kind of in competition for is just really interesting. It's a really interesting setup. Yeah. Especially given that like, it's not like Hotspur lacks her father figures. He has two. Yes. He all, yeah, yeah, which is, I hadn't really, I just said it out loud and so does Hal. Um, But Mm -hmm. I do think that Northumberland and Worcester are not really in competition. They're a united front. There's this amazing scene, um, in Phyllida Lloyd's all women production of this play yeah. where it's set in all of, it's part of her Shakespeare trilogy, which are all set in a women's prison. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this moment where there's like a punching bag hanging from a corner and, you know, Hotspur is yeah. practicing punching on the punching bag. And then um, Northumberland sort of comes up behind with the silk jacket to like have her mm. put it on. And it's just so the, like, you are my little weapon. Like you are my yeah asset it's not a paternal gesture it's a like you know the skeezy proprietary yeah exactly the skeezy manager this is the the horse i'm riding yeah absolutely and you know what's interesting about that is that the fact that you don't sense who is loved by whom in a world full of all men in various kind of familial configurations who is loved by whom is actually a really interesting question to keep your eye on in this play because Hotspur is not exactly loved by Northumberland and Worcester. He's used by Northumberland and Worcester in a really explicit way to kind of pursue their own ends. And I think, you know, Northumberland has some heartbreaking text about him in part two, but that's not in this play. And so, you know, it's about the fact that like, I don't know, it's interesting that they're both in a way looking for love in the wrong places all the wrong places you know (laughs) right I mean it's just the fact that I mean it's about loyalty right it's a you use the word original sin I think Mm. and this is a world whose original sin is a betrayal and now in the aftermath of that every relationship Mm -hmm. is suspect and every sort of interpersonal relationship we Mm -hmm. see is either in the aftermath of the process of, or at risk of mm-hmm. being broken by betrayal. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is like the original sin is again, in an entirely homosocial world of men, you know, the betrayal of one's friends and yeah. 
And in a world where like the sort of fault line through every relationship is the potential for betrayal in a way, isn't the only relationship you can trust your enemy. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Because you know, because you, you get to know how they feel about you. Yeah. You know where you stand, you know what they're going to do, you know, my God, that's so, I'm about to get so the real, the real, sorry, the real question of this episode is whether I'm going to be able to talk about Hotspur without crying at some point, (laughs) but, um, and the answer is gonna be no, but the fact that you set that up so brilliantly of like, okay, so if the only relationship you can really trust that you're on solid ground with is your enemy, there's almost like the only way for that relationship to slip out of your grasp and even for an instant become something destabilizing that you don't recognize is if the underbelly of it is somehow not hatred, but love. Mm. I, have, know? I have, I don't know if I agree with that, but I'm going to put a pin in it. I yeah. think that I well, think it's just that, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think you're wrong, but I think there's, I think there's something more to that, but I want to save for it sure, if you don't sure. mind. That's fine. I was wondering, though, speaking of, I wonder if this question of the sort of incipient betrayal that like mm-hmm. defines every relationship can lead us back to Hal and Falstaff. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Be- I mean, because this play is so Freudian in a way that I find it's sort of aggravating on some level because yeah. it literally is like, okay, in the first act, we had a conversation about what will happen to me when you're king, where we didn't sort of we avoided alluding to the fact that we both know we're joking and we pretended we're not anxious about that question. Now let's put right. on a play where we act out our anxieties about the question of who do you love more, your daddy or me? And also I play your dad. And yeah, I mean, it your is dad. so, the whole, it's just act to who's your daddy. It's well, the whole, then, like it is. It is. And then they switch and when how, as you said, if the question is which of these men does he become when he plays his father and becomes his father, the first yep. thing he does is reject Falstaff. Yes. Yes. And, you know, so to throw a little context and then maybe a little text on this, um, what's happened is while they're all drinking and shooting the shit after the thieves come home and they play an embarrassing prank on Falstaff and reveal that the money is safe after all and blah, blah, blah. Um, the next, uh, set piece thing that they decide to do for fun in this series of Hal and Falstaff entertain the bar, because why not, is, um, they do, they act out what will happen when Henry, it's like a disciplinary conversation between the king and how. I mean, I think the thing that w- w- needs to be slipped in is they get mm-hmm. news that yes. officially the rebels have rebelled. The word is out. Yes. They're mustering forces and Hal's going to have to go back to court to like deal mm-hmm. with this. And Falstaff's like, you're going to be in trouble. And then they decide the answer to this is to act out what will happen when Hal gets home. (laughs) Right. Why not, I guess? Because why not? And so the first thing that Falstaff tries to do is play the obvious joke as himself as Henry, where, you know, he does the thing of like, who's that great man you're always hanging out with? And of course, everybody laughs. And he's like, I think his name's Falstaff. And everybody's like, la, la, la. And then Hal switcheroos and is like oh my you know I mean the text is uh 
uh, you know, do thou stand for me and I'll play my father. And then Falstaff is like, depose me. And then they switch places. And then usually I feel like it should be said in production, the tone of the game changes pretty dramatically as soon as Hal becomes not himself, but Henry. And yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I just think that it, yeah, because building on this idea of like the public knowledge of how how House Father feels about him and also the sort of yes. irresistible naturalism adjacent feeling of so many mm-hmm. of these scenes. Mm-hmm. The idea that this is how Hal imagines his father speaking to him is yeah. really brutal. And also, as we will see in the next scene or mm-hmm. a scene in a scene away from now, yeah. not yeah. wrong. No, no, it's brutal and severe and uh, cold and punitive. And he yells at him for hanging out with the people he's hanging out with. And the whole thing builds to uh, Falstaff's kind of brilliant um, defense of himself and sort of all licentious people, you know, which ends with banish plump Jack and banish all the world. And then right before the cops knock on the door, Hal has the very famous line, I do, I will. And then they get interrupted before he can sort of before the moment gets punctured, before it can land on anything, which is again, a brilliant choice by Shakespeare. But that's where a critical sort of fissure of betrayal already kind of creeps in. And then, you know, speaking of where you began this whole conversation about the idea of the sort of lost queer youth, act two is always really important and interesting to me because a huge, the whole thing, all of the playtime that they're having of one kind or another is really shot through for me with like the knowledge of the fact that the fun is already ending. Like the fun, you know, the, the youth is about to end the war. The news of the war is already on the periphery of the party. The cops are at the door. This is it. I mean, this is the question of betrayal, right? And I think that this is a really interesting question that sort of haunts the performance history of this play, because there have mm. been, I think, the kind of feeling at the moment and for the past kind of 15, 20 years, particularly, I mean, longer than that, is that Hal is the main character of the play, especially when you do these productions of the multiple parts, including Henry V. It's like, obviously, sure, yeah. he's the star. Um, right. But that's a recent feeling. And I think particularly in like the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, the feeling was much more that Hal was this kind of Machiavellian creep who is just lying to everybody and is sort of Mm -hmm. horrible. Um, Mm. And I think that that is the kind of question that shoots through the performance history of this is like, to what extent is he playing the game with some kind of sincerity or to what extent is he always a bit of a scumbag who's just kind of manipulating these people? And how much can the audience tell that? Yes. I mean, this is the thing that is so fascinating about him for directors. You know what I mean? It's that thing that I that I said before of the fact that there are so many layers of artifice. Is there even a self underneath it? And that is a really actually tricky question to answer, you know, in terms of like, I mean, something we've talked about before in having worked on the play is this the the really striking fact that, you know, the scene, the great speech that everybody knows where Hal turns to the audience at the end of act one and explains the plan 
feels like the beginning of a relationship that we are going to have with him, where we're going to have access to his interiority, like the way we do with other really psychologically realistic characters like Richard and Iago and lots of different people who keep us in their pocket for the whole play. But actually what happens is that Hal never speaks to us again. And so it's like you're offered a door and then it's it's sealed and never opened again, which is a really tricky thing to manage tonally in performance. Yeah, I always think about the fact in this same um, Dominic Drumgoul production, mm. Prince Hal was played by Jamie Parker, later of Harry Potter, the Cursed Child fame, um, yes. and Roger Allen was Falstaff. And I remember reading an interview where both of them said, like, the way we approached these roles was just to take every scene as it came. We made yes. no effort to build an arc or to kind of create, even in our own minds, a sense of cause mm -hmm. and effect from scene to scene. We just did each scene. Yes. And I think they're both really remarkable performances. And obviously that really worked in their case. Um, yeah. And I kind of think on some level that is all you can do with yes. Hal. Because again, you go from him explaining the plan. In the next scene, he kind of you know, carrying on from that double crosses. So they're not actually stealing. And then you have this long tavern scene where if he is not fully present and engaged and having fun, the scene is a misery. Yes. And then you have this scene, which we're about to talk about in act three, where he kind of mm -hmm. has this confrontation with his dad, where he seems genuinely stunned to realize that people think badly of him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's this tantalizing mixture of what feels like real, um, you know, like what we might consider psychological realism and also in the usual Shakespeare way, sort of a complete lack of, of coherence, you know, in terms of like, I mean, you can't, you can only, you can look for it, but you may not find it, which is why it's such an interesting like puzzle. Yeah. I mean, and I think to maybe tap into some, a, a, a sensation we have discussed before, <laughs> it is like, What's the missing piece? What's the missing piece and what is like, is there, is, what is he hiding? What he, he claims yeah. to be telling the audience everything, but clearly he's not. So what ha, right. what's the part you haven't told us? And I kind of want to like slide into act three. Do you have something more to... No, I mean, I think I desperately want to want to shift gears and talk about Hotspur. So do you want to shift into act three for Hal and then maybe go into a Hotspur space or what yeah. do you want? Okay. So... I think to build on this idea of what is the missing piece mm, and mm. in act three, we delve really explicitly into, I think a really important idea of what that missing piece might be. And it is the deposed former King Richard II. Yes. Because this is the act where Hal goes to talk to his dad for the first time in the play halfway through. Mm. And it, as you said, they have this really brutal conversation where Henry is not kind, um, mm -hmm. not patient, and goes on this really long, like, I mean, rant is unfair because it is exquisitely structured. He's always, great speech. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Henry is a character who is always in complete control of his language in a way that is very yes. um, hereditary, apparently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and basically says, if I had acted like you, I would never have been able to become king. You act like Richard and Hotspur acts like me. Yes. Um, and there are several layers of that. One of which oh. is building into the like, who, who gets daddy's love 
competition between Hal and Hotspur. But also, I think it is really interesting to explicitly compare Hal to Richard, especially when the problem is the people they were both hanging out with. I do wonder, Harriet, thy affections. Yeah. Which do hold a wing quite from the flight of all thy ancestors. Is what he says. And so to contextualize, for those who don't know, Richard II both in the Shakespeare play that came before this, but also just like in the culture was a, shall we say, heavily queer coded, <laughs> not to be too contemporary. An guy. absolute homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> but one of these kings who was too close to his favorites and that causes problems. Mm-hmm. And his gay little ghost hovers over this play. And especially in this scene. And so the specific text that Henry says to Hal, and again, this play started with a political and sort of personal comparison between Hal and Hotspur. And he takes it so far in this scene as to say, for all the world as thou wast to this hour was Richard then, and even as I was then, is Percy now. And it's this sort of continual, like we said, the kind of the ghosts of betrayals in the generations past are coming home to roost in like an incredibly explicit way here. You're like the gay king I got rid of. Hotspur is like me, a young manly king. Who has five sons. Yeah. And again, is he right? Well, (laughs) is he right? No, we'll get into that in a minute. But the fact that that is the the comparison, it's so clear. Yeah, it's this is the, is this the problem? Is this the thing that you won't and can't say? And Mm. is this one of the elements of essential kingship that Hal's refusing to do. Right. It's sort of organize your affections. And I mean, it's your thing about you're falling in love. I mean, Falstaff as the, as the woman figure of like, you're falling in love with your own country and you shouldn't be seen to do that. And like, and basically like, what's interesting is that his criticism specifically is that he's letting himself be seen too much so that he isn't mysterious to the people anymore. He's basically like, stop hoeing around, you know? And what he means is like, you know, like act grown up and act more like a king. But part of that means let people look at you from afar, but not know you. Which- Because that's what Richard did wrong. Yeah. Which is of course what Hal argues he is doing. That he can be in their presence and still unknown. Oh my God. It's that, it's that- that in the world and not of the world thing, but sort of, it's really interesting, but no, yeah, it's, uh, well, maybe this is a good point for me to bring up a question that was haunting me earlier. Okay. And it was just interesting because, so in all the times that we've talked about this play, I'm not sure I've ever even asked you this question, but it's the thing of like, in the I know you all speech, this is where Hal lays out the plan and you think that he knows what he's talking about. And then maybe he does and maybe he doesn't. His scheme is I'm going to seem to be doing really badly and to be doing all of these things. And then at the opportune moment, I'm going to switch and basically like my true colors will show and I'll like, you know, I'll act like a king and I'll grow up and then people will be surprised. And because they had no expectations of me, suddenly they'll be very impressed. And like, that's basically the plan. But what's so funny about that, especially as compared to Hotspur, who's doing everything the house is supposed to be doing, like, why, why <laughs> do, why do it that, like, if you could just do it right all along, why start here? Why do it this way? 
because it'll be more impressive. It'll show more goodly and attract more <laughs> eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. <laughs> um. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I wonder if it has something to do with, I think the sort of argument that I have seen made is on the one mm. hand, there is a need for redemption from this original sin. His yes. line of the monarchy is tainted by what happened. Yes. And once he becomes king later, he works really hard to sort of erase his father's place yes in the sort of collective memory and so it's mm. i think something to do with kind of not not being trained up by his father not being seen to be a mm. line um mm. and then i wonder if it's also maybe something to do with the thing that we sort of said at the beginning which is that really neither king henry nor hotspur are living up to the ideals that they purport to represent in the way that they need to that's right that's he needs right to find a new a new way, way to be king yes yeah 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 and I mean I think it's interesting that you pointed out earlier the fact that you know our maybe contemporary regard for Hal or sort of obsession centering of Hal in the story is maybe a more contemporary thing than you know the previous perception of him as a sort of Machiavellian figure in a bad way it's, inter it's interesting how different eras view the kind of inventing of a new kind of kingship that he is doing, because that is what's happening. But how we feel about that, I think, depends sort of on the era we're in and whether or not we feel like our leaders should be governed more by emotion or less. Hmm. You know? Yeah. I think it's an, he's an interesting cipher in that way. But something I do want to kind of draw our attention to is, you know, the, the boys are pitted against each other. The boys are aware that they're pitted against each other. And now in this big scene with his dad is where we get the text. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, used, you quoted the first speech has the word foil in it. This speech has Percy is but my factor. Good, my Lord, to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf, you know, and it has the the really like visceral physical language of like, I will tear the reckoning from his heart. Yeah, he you know? promises we're going to meet and yeah. I'm going to defeat him. And I'm going to kill him. Yeah. I mean, and then all of his, you know, for all the glory sitting on his head, would they were multitudes and on my head, my shame's redoubled. But, you know, the whole thing of. Well, it's that it's, same idea, right? It's like the lower, yeah. the more of an underdog I am, the more impressive it will be when I win. That's right. And yet the the personal kind of the anger and the mm -hmm. the anger and the and the personal obsession about Hotspur, I feel like really starts to creep into the language there of like this is about public perception, but it's also about the fact that I can't wait to eat him for breakfast. You know what I mean? It's that thing of just like, I do want what, what he has. It's like an admission of the vulnerability in a way of like, I do want what he has and I'm going to get it. Yeah. Which is just so weird. Again, the passion of the language itself yes. makes no sense if you take him at face value that everything he's done and doing it for the whole entire play is mm. an act that he has premeditated. This is the tension of the whole thing. But leaving it there, I feel like we have to talk about Hotspur a bit before we okay. flow toward, toward 
battle. Yes. So, so Hotspur, whose big scene with his wife, we jumped in, in act two so that we could kind of enfold it into the kind of, you know, getting ready for war sort of sequence is it's what we said before about he's set up as being great on the battlefield. We know this is true. He's very bad at all other things. He is also super bad at being married to a woman. He is bad at that. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it, it's, it's her first line is why haven't we had sex in ages? <laughs> like, that's right. You well, know, what offense we, have I? Uh, yeah, this, this, whatever it is, been Fortnite. a banished woman, a Fortnite been a banished woman from my Harry's bed. It's textually explicitly a cold marriage. Yeah. Which is like when we're saying that like Hotspur is me, the king with five sons who gets more sons in every play. Um, no, he's not. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. And it's something like we've talked about before the idea that like, you know, in the way that marriage is depicted, it's like, if there's a future, you can tell that it's because the marriage is going to be fertile. Like, you know, and it's like, this is very, very much not a fertile marriage. And she's trying, but he just will not let her in. No, and I think it is so interesting not to bring in a play that we have not yet talked about. But this scene, his scene with his wife is identical to a scene in Julius Caesar. Yes, it is. Um, written, like, within a couple of years of each other. It mm-hmm. is the same scene. The wife comes yes. in and is like, why won't you tell me what you're planning? The husband's like, I can't for various reasons. She mm-hmm. keeps being like, but you haven't been sleeping and I'm worried about you. And then the two scenes only mm-hmm. diverge at the very end when Brutus says, you know what? I, I'm so silly. Of course, you're amazing. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you're, you're Cato's daughter. And yeah. Hotspur is like, maybe when I'm over there on my horse, I'll say I love you. But until then, please shut up. It is rough and again speaking of there's there's a lot of big allure on the Shakespeare as psychological realism train in this play and this is a great scene the big the big Percy scene is a great scene and it's really really interesting because I mean that the line that you just paraphrased is my, is my favorite line in the whole scene where and I've always felt like it's not even a dismissal so much as just like actually almost accidentally a real statement of the fact of their marriage. He says, when I am on horseback, I will swear I love thee infinitely. And that's the whole problem of Hotspur. It's like, when I'm in my elements, I'll think back on you fondly, but I actually can't share a room with you. Like I actually can't be next to you. I'll think about you when I'm hundreds of miles away. (laughs) That's the setup, you know? And it's like, it's because he can only be like a sort of, in that sense, he's like a kind of feudal sort of courtly love style hero of like, maybe I'll think about you while I'm in the middle of doing what I actually do. But there's no, I mean, he has text that is sort of fairly crude text to say to your wife as well, where he's basically like, this isn't, you know, like I'm getting ready for war. I don't have time to make out with you. Yeah. (laughs) Like This is no world to play with mammoths and to tilt with (laughs) lips. We must have bloody noses and cracked crowns. And I think then yeah. we see him transitioning into act three. We see him yeah. try. Yes. So act he three starts with a really. He would tempt. Act, <laughs> act three starts with a really banana scene because Kate, Percy, his wife in the previous scene is trying to, is wanting to go along with him as far as she can. And so act three opens with them doing a sort of, attempted power brokering alliance thing with Glendower who leads the Welsh. I mean, and 
to like attempt to recap the tangle of political alliances here yes. in the play because it is not historically accurate. Basically, sure. the claim that the Percy's are building on is actually the claim of Kate's brother to yes. the crown. And her brother Mortimer, we learn in the first scene of the play, has sort of defected and married the Welsh into the Welsh kind of would-be kings, which is right. Glendower. So now they are this alliance of <laughs> Glendower wants to run Wales. Mortimer mm-hmm. believes he has a claim to run England. And then for some reason, they're going to give the Percys the North. Right. So for helping as a, as a, as a treat. Right, right, right. As a treat, um, we're going to get out the map and carve up England to suit ourselves. So which, what happens? Mm. I just want to like note is makes it even more interesting that he will not tell her what's going on because it is literally her husband and her brother. She has the right from every yeah. side to be involved yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And it's just, I mean, you know, the comparison that you made with the Portia Bruta scene is like, these are scenes that explicitly pit loyalties to other men against the bond of heterosexual marriage. To whom do I owe my secrets? To, you know, who has access to my information? Who has access to my interiority? And Hotspur's answer is not my wife. Mm -hmm. And um, so, Act three opens with them having to be in the same room with Mortimer and his new Welsh wife. And it's very funny because Shakespeare is making fun of the Welsh because Glendower is a straight up lunatic. But also like, I always find it really funny and also kind of poignant that like Mortimer and his wife have nothing in common at all. They literally don't share a language. And a lot of is made of that in the scene. And they have a better marriage than Hotspur and Kate. And that's sort of like weirdly the comparison of the scene is that they're like they're newlyweds but they're like all over her and they keep you know they're like all over each other they keep making jokes about the fact that they can't speak the same language but she is so distraught by him leaving her and going to war that she's inconsolably crying for like the whole scene and Hosper and Kate are just sort of watching them yeah and they even they do and then there's this you know she being translated by her dad so like when your father-in-law has to translate your love language and you still have a better marriage you know um it's like she's gonna she's gonna sing for you and she sings a lovely welsh song and hotspur makes all these crude jokes before and after and then it's like okay kate your turn to sing and they like have a little fight about it and it's just very Mm -hmm. like i spent a long time trying to figure out what the sort of latter half of because the first half of the scene is politics and then the women come in and it gets very weird and it's like what is it for and I think it's exactly as you say it is to deliberately set up the contrast and I think as I was joking a minute ago to watch Hotspur try yeah to do what these other two are doing and fail and he just can't he just can't and eventually he gives up and walks out with Mortimer and that's the last they ever see of each other and I mean like and you know when the women come in his text to Mortimer which always makes me laugh is as we're transitioning from the political half to the domestic half of the scene he says oh here come our wives let us take our leave oh no let's leave yeah <laughs> which I've is so funny because that plate like- is him like trying to get out of the room and then be like come back here here come our wives let's go and you know it yeah it ends it does he does sort of try and it doesn't really go very well and that's the end of the domestic space and then as we move into act four Hotspur is back sort of in his home context which is the battlefield and preparation preparation for it and solely in the company of other men which changes his tone dramatically 
And I think we learn, I think, to move into act four. We do get some sort of, we check in with Hal and Falstaff in act three and Mm -hmm. Hal sort of gives Falstaff money to corruptly try to use to hire soldiers, which he doesn't. Um, And again, I think speaking of these sort of increasingly dire warnings of like, what will this partnership mean if Falstaff has real power? It's like nothing good. Mm. (laughs) Absolutely nothing good. Nothing good. No, nothing good. And like Falstaff's, it's interesting because I I love Falstaff very much. And, you know, we'll talk about him more in, in part two, you know, someday, but the, it's not that he himself becomes, I like how you just said about the dire warnings of just kind of his position. I don't, I don't feel that it's that he in himself becomes sort of more sinister as the world gets graver around him, but his refusal to understand the real life consequences of his actions becomes more dangerous because because he doesn't sort of credit the idea of war and he has a beautiful speech about it in act four um you know he hires a bunch of randos who don't really understand what's happening and who are just sort of like random drunk ruffians to come along and be his like battalion and then later when we see him in the battle we learn that they've all died and like you know his sort of it's a he doesn't do it well (laughs) No, no. And I think we can return to like how that fits into the two daddies question when we get for sure the battle itself. Yeah. But I think, no, no, go ahead. No, go for it. Well, I was going to say something else that happens in act four is like when Hotspur has to leave Kate behind the next people we see him with are like, this is where we get the Douglas. Yes. That is what I was going to transition (laughs) to as well. So I feel like on the one hand in act four, we learn who the woman Hotspur is in love with is, which is the fire-eyed maid of Smoky War. Um, And his determination to personify war as a hot woman that he is going to have sex with. Yep. But we, okay, so I need to digress again, (laughs) if that's okay. We're we still coming it. in. We're still coming in under two hours. We're still fine. Oh, um, resolutely. I've I've given up all hopes for that's that's the bar, and we are yeah, gonna meet it. We get a prize if we meet it. So that's I want I'm an a prize. Ex- I'm an extrinsically motivated person. Okay, so yep. Hotspur and the Douglas, his Scottish ally, who we have heard tell of. Speaking of the sort of things we hear, this is yes. one of the figures that Hal and Falstaff make fun of in the tavern when they hear that war is starting. Um, mm. There is a quote, I want to say by Philip, it's either by Philip Sidney or by Ben Johnson, which I realize is a very weird <laughs> two people to not be sure which it is. But for some reason, I can't remember which of them it was, which basically says that I would rather have written, he said, I'd rather have written the ballad of Chevy Chase than anything I wrote. And this is this ballad. Yes, it is called Chevy Chase. Yes, like the actor. Incredible. Um, which is like part of this like ballad tradition Um of which, you know, these are like popular songs that are sung by everybody. You see, you could get them printed um, and put on the walls in taverns and people would like change the words to like reflect different political events. They talk Mm. about them in the winter's tale. Um, And one of the most popular ones, it seems, is this ballad, which tells the tale of um, a fight that did not actually happen between a Percy, not this Percy, and a Douglas, not this Douglas, Mm. It didn't really happen. So it's like, who are they? But it is very, I think, important that these two names were sort of 
paired in the popular imagination and the context in which they were paired is I'm going to die in the arms of this man I love so much because he's the most valiant enemy I've ever had and he's so hot and great so yeah that is there now (laughs) (laughs) that is there now thank you for putting that there now because they're greed they're they're greeting you know, I mean, speaking in terms of what you what you set up earlier about like the only relationship you can really understand, the only straightforward relationship is your enemy. They meet in this hilariously uh, affectionate kind of way of like, you know, what is, what is the text? A braver man, uh, a braver something, something hath no man than yourself. Basically, like they start with text that's like, we used to be enemies, but now we're on the same side and I can't wait. Like it's it like their whole alliance starts with like a big bro hug. Well, and they like sort they're of make just reference. obsessed with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the position of the Percy family is to guard the border. The people that Hotspur has become famous fighting are the Scots. Mm-hmm. And probably specifically Douglas. And right. so it is, and they keep kind of making reference to like, hey, if you'd fought this well when we were fighting, yes. I would have lost. And like, it's, it is this like bond of mutual respect of like, yes, yeah. we have literally grown up fighting each other, but like, that means yes. we understand and love each other. Right. It's like the perfect man for Hotspur is uh, the perfect man is the man that you keep trying your hardest against and can't succeed in killing. It's like the ultimate, the ultimate one that got away. (laughs) And I think that that's why on some level, I don't think that it's destabilizing to have love at the core of your enemy relationship because it is like, it is your truest best enemy is a relationship of mutual respect. And I think his problem with Hal is that he disdains him. Yes. 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 Yeah. Well, and yeah, because it's the, the kind of masculinity that it's clear that Hotspur um, pursues and reveres in others. Douglas is like the perfect embodiment of, and you know, it's interesting because it makes it really clear that the act of being in combat against each other is much more important to the activity of combat is much more important to them than the reasons why, like if they actually like, if they hated each other for like deep-seated political reasons, this allyship wouldn't be able to take root. You know what I mean? But it's like this, you know, it's the sort of weird purity of just making a life out of violence. Well, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, it's the joke that you keep making that he's only good at one thing. If his true self is only the person he is in battle, then only Douglas knows that person. Exactly right. Which is, the reason why if you, if that is your whole identity, I mean, this is why Hotspur is gay, is that if your whole identity is based on something that only other men can take part in and see you do and understand you doing, that's, I mean, that's it right there. It's just like, there literally is no place for her in the heart of what he cares about. And like, and so, you know, something else that I think about in terms of Act 4 is like, I think you get to see into a little bit the ways in which Hotspur, even though he's independently sort of lauded and it feels in this seesaw that we've been talking about, like he's been on top this whole time, the ways in which he's been defining himself in opposition to Hal and relying on Hal, staying on the bottom and not trying very hard. Mm -hmm. One of the most, one of my favorite moments in the play that I think is sort of one of the most chilling and interesting is when they're in kind of camps preparing for battle and beginning negotiations in act four, 
uh, Vernon, <coughs> a random guy, a, a lord who's sort of on the rebel side who shows up and gives them some news um, in a kind of continual run of bad news that the Douglas and, Ho and Hotspur receive. One of which is that his dad's not coming. Another of which is that Glendower is not coming till later. They're just getting their, you know, the, the odds are getting steeper and then Vernon shows up and sort of like you get the sense that like as a way to kind of make himself feel better by comparison Hotspur has the great line to Vernon where is his son the nimble-footed madcap prince of Wales and his comrades that daft the world aside and bid it pass and then completely you get the sense unsuspected by Hotspur Vernon says all furnished all in arms and then Vernon gives this incredibly gay uh, sort of incredibly adoring um, picture of how his first into his like seat. Yeah. Two sort of adoring blazons of how yes. kind of describing yes. him and his conduct piece by piece in a very romantic what he's way. wearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vernon is very into it. He makes sure that we get a very vivid and sort of intimidating and beautiful picture of how preparing for battle and it's very funny because he goes on and on and on about it. And then Hotspur shuts him up with potentially my favorite text. So, I mean, some of his gayest, certainly, where he says, no more, no more. Let them come. They come like sacrifices in their trim and to the fire-eyed maid of smoky war, all hot and bleeding, we will offer them. Which is just like, um, what? And not to, not to sort of make this an endless quotation, but this is like very important of how specifically Hotspur has this text in that scene. He says, he says, come, let me taste my horse who is to bear me like a thunderbolt against the bosom of the Prince of Wales. Harry to Harry shall hot horse to horse meet and ne'er part till one drop down a course, which is literally, we've had this date from the beginning. It's just like, and it's simultaneously neither can live while the other survives. It's just like, we're gonna have this like incredibly visceral clash and one of us is gonna die. Yes, and yeah. also no, because then in the next scene, so- they sort of come, they offer a parlay and like Worcester comes to the king and recites this sort of once again sense of like, we feel betrayed and this is why. Mm. Um, and Henry's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've said this a hundred times and the audience by this point is a bit like you have. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but Hal steps forward and is like, tries to kind of engineer the thing you're yeah. describing. He's like, I will fight Hotspur one-on-one. -on -one. Let's and, boil it all the way down to the yeah. two of us. Yeah. And Hotspur gets this news and is like, this has nothing to do with the two of us. Like, that's a nice thought, but no, mm -hmm. obviously not. Um, and then still he says like, would the, the quarrel lay upon our heads? But it's still, yeah. it, it is interesting that like Shakespeare dangles the idea yes. of this symbolic one-on-one -on -one combat to, to resolve mm. the entire conflict and then sure. takes it away. Yeah, I always get the sense that, because what happens is that Hotspur says, you know, oh, would the quarrel lay upon our heads and no, someone might draw short breath today, but I and Harry Monmouth, but then it's too late because Douglas runs in and is like, I sounded the whatever, like they're coming. And yeah, then the but battle I think just it's takes still, off in and of itself. If he was willing to, like, if, if, if it was able to happen it would happen like you know it's mm. I just think it's Shakespeare doesn't have to introduce that idea at all you know yeah. and yet he chooses to kind of mm -hmm. again promise to cap this off the way that sort mm -hmm. of symbolically it feels like it should and mm -hmm. again like hot he doesn't have Hotspur say oh that's a good idea oh shit it's too late he says no that's really not what this is about though 
Mm. And yet when they are finally riding into battle and it is the moment, you know, when everybody's like, okay, it's happening, we're going, he, he reminds us again at the beginning of Act 5, you know, he has the text, you know, be he as he will, yet once ere night, I will embrace him with a soldier's arm. You know, so even as they're rushing into battle, like, there is still, we carry it into it forward with the sense of like, well, it's interesting because that's, that's in response to Vernon's second adoring speech <laughs> where yes. he says he made this challenge and um, uh, Hotspur says how showed his tasking seemed to in contempt. Like, yeah. you know, this is our relationship. He is this yeah. screw up. Is I'm he making big- fun of me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then Vernon again gives this long adoring speech and it's in mm-hmm. response to that that Hotspur mm-hmm. kind of says, okay, fine. If that's the case, don't worry. Mm-hmm. We'll, we will encounter each other. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, that like his, his, their interest in what each other thinks of them only gets sort of hotter and hotter and hotter as the play, as, as their meeting gets closer and closer, you know what I mean? Is like that his, that, that his first impulse is like, was it in contempt? And then Vernon has to specify like, no, no, very sincere, actually very sincere. He said a lot of nice stuff about you. And then Hotspur's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I think that in a way, I don't think that Hotspur recognizes them. I think that the, the encounter between them carries more symbolic weight for Hal for obvious reasons. Mm, of course. Until yes. basically Hal has killed Hotspur. Yes. Yes. I don't Which think that, I think, yeah. Yeah, I don't no, think. No, I don't think that Hotspur kind of sees them as passionate equals on level with the way he sees the Douglas kind of until it's already over. Yeah. Well, I think what's so part of what's so exciting about the conflict when you're actually physically staging it is that based on Hal's reputation and, you know, complete hitherto lack of interest in anything martial at all stacked against Hotspur's amazing reputation, you know, I mean, like, it's a really exciting fight because everyone, including Hotspur, believes that he'll win incredibly handily. Mm-hmm. And then somehow he doesn't, you know? And so the fact that Hotspur thinks like one of the things I'm going to do today is kill the Prince of Wales, but like doesn't necessarily, you know, hang a tremendous amount. Like the fact that it's a surprise is why it's great drama. You yes. know what I mean? You know, which is like such a key thing about it. And of course, like, bringing it all back to that, the plan of Hal's of like, I will seem to be shitty at everything Hotspur's good at. And then at the critical moment, reveal that I'm actually competent. You know I mean? Like the, the suspense that the audience is carrying into the, into the conflict with is like, is he going to be able to do it? Yeah. I don't want to like totally skip over a couple plot things that happen in these acts as well. One of which I think is really particularly important to this thread of betrayal and the idea that your enemy is the only relationship you can trust, which is that both Mm. of Hotspur's allies betray him, his father and his uncle in various degrees of explicitness. Um, Yeah, yeah, uh, basically Worcester is offered the chance to not have this fight. There's the sort of one-on-one combat offer, but then Henry says, you know, we will still, I will still pardon you if you give up now. Mm. And Worcester decides we see him decide with vernon not to tell hotspur this explicitly Mm -hmm. he says because hotspur will get off scot-free and i will get in trouble because i am seen as the root of this and so hotspur is led into this 
conflict by a betrayal and under false pretenses. And I just, I mean, A, it's heartbreaking. And B, I think there is something in kind of in the final reckoning, Mm. all that has kind of remained true and remained steady and remained Mm -hmm. there. And in the end, the only person who kind of shows him respect is Hal. 100%. 100%. I mean, yeah, that's sort of the whole setup of Hotspur, like we said before, is that like he, depending on how you play it, but like in his single-mindedness, if he feels like he's actually been endowed with trust and the sort of sacredness of carrying the mission, you know, by his uncle and his father, and then they completely abandon him in his kind of hour of need. And Douglas, who is his sort of brother in arms, is the only person who's there with him as the kind of, you know, horizon of victory gets sort of more and more unsure. Like the, you're right. It's the, the, not just respect, but like, again, you know, the assumption, the, he's been betrayed by his own family mm-hmm. and all of the kind of love that you feel has sort of bolstered him turns out to be kind of shallow and false. And like, they would rather sacrifice him and save themselves out of, you know, cowardice or whatever it is. But like, I don't know. It's interesting too, that there's a line just to lift up something that Hotspur says that I hadn't really noticed again until this time is that when Blunt, who's on the crown's sort of side, um, brings the initial offer of sort of surrender and clemency from the king, where he's like, you can just sort of lay the weapons down. And Henry says, he'll, he'll wipe it all away and everything can be groovy. And Hotspur says, when he's talking about how he doesn't trust the King, he says, by this face, this seeming brow of justice, did he win the hearts of all that he did angle for? And then he basically goes on to repeat the history to Blunt about the fact that, yeah, he used to pretend to love my uncle and father. And then he screwed them over as soon as he was King. And then just to put that in context with the fact that Hotspur then himself is also betrayed by people who pretended to love him or, you know, it's just, it's sad. It is sad. And it's just the, yeah, it's these, these sort of fault lines running through Mm -hmm. every relationship, like we said, and in the end, we are left with, to return to the sort of, like I said, kind of pop culture vision of Percy dying in another man's arms. That is what he is meant to do. Yes. Um, A pair that needn't have come to this yes and are in some ways the only two who have been loyal to one another and to their ideas of one another Hal and Hotspur yeah 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 Yeah. I mean that's why (laughs) the fact that they're both named Harry is such an interesting thing because it just gets, you know, I mean, it gets the symmetry between them. Yeah, well, we get Harry to Harry, shall hot horse yeah. to horse, and then we have two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, nor shall England I mean, it's the double short... reign of Harry Percy and the Prince of Wales. He doesn't say it, but it's like the implied yeah. doubling well, of them. Yeah, I mean, the symmetry, yeah, the two stars thing. I mean, it's not a very long um, encounter, so we made as well, you know, just you just quoted a big chunk of it, but like them meeting in the battlefield starts with a sort of very epic moment where Hotspur, Hal's already on stage having fought some people off and, and Hotspur sort of pops up and says, if I mistake not, thou art Harry Monmouth. And then Henry says, I speak as if thou, thou speaks as if I would deny my name. Which like <laughs> the seeming 
is back. Uh-huh. The seeming is back. And then Hotspur says, my name is Harry Percy and sort of clangs that down. But the fact that he calls himself Harry and Hal Harry yeah. in the same breath. And then Hal says, why then I see a very valiant rebel of the name. And that's where he says, I'm the Prince of Wales and think not Percy to share with me in glory anymore, you know? And it's like the acknowledgement that like, okay, well, we have been in, we have been the same, but two stars keep not their motion in one sphere. And that has to end now. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, we have been sort of psychically sharing space mm-hmm. for too long. And, and also in a way explicitly, like we've been sharing a name for too long. Yeah. You and know, and it's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's the thing that we've sort of, it is both the thing we've talked about before of the sort of queerness of being the same person, but for yes. them, it's like you, it is also the convergence. Like it is like you are in every mm-hmm. sense drawn together and mm-hmm. have been, I mean, as mm-hmm. you said, we've had the state from the beginning, but it is like yeah. also drawn into this conflict, which has been relentlessly characterized, especially by Hotspur in these incredibly vis- visceral and bordering on, bordering on sexual Terms. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is, again, like it's like th- there is a purity to <laughs> the relationships that Hotspur has with his enemies, that in this yes. world where everyone is constantly betraying each other and all Hal's relationship with his friends are a lie, he's told yes. us he has no yes. real relationships either. Only, this is the only thing that's real and true. Yes, exactly. And so I have a couple of thoughts about that. It's like because of Hotspur and a little bit how, but mostly Hotspur, it's both sort of highly eroticized and also weirdly because of the name sharing thing and the kind of cosmic convergence of it. It's also like the cleaving of oneself in half Mm. irrevocably. You know what I mean? It's like it is like a sort of like we've been bound together by fate and we have to create a separation, Mm. you know, and like. So they fight. Hotspur dies and he does die. Like he does sort of die in Hal's arms. Hal finishes his sentence, which is, you know, we've talked about sort of language being penetrative and breath being shared and stuff before, but I mean, you know, it's like, it is a shared line and they, uh, Hotspur dies by saying, uh, oh, Percy, thou art dust and food for, and then Hal finishes the phrase and says for worms, brave Percy, fare thee well, great heart. And like, it is a really respectful and like affectionate, and sad farewell, especially because it is their only meeting in the play. And like you said, it didn't have to come to this, but it did in some poetic way. And now Hal has to go forward in the play and in the kind of, you know, Marvel universe journey of the Henry plays, being the self that no longer has Hotspur as a foil. Yeah, though I have two thoughts about that. One is that yeah. on some level, if we're thinking of them as a cohesive unit, which I don't think we should do, he both doesn't have yeah. Hotspurs as a foil and has absorbed him. And by the time we get to Henry yes. V, he is very explicitly using Hotspur's own language yeah. without acknowledgement of that, which I think is interesting. But I also think what's interesting is the sort of, in the more melancholy tone that you've just proposed, mm. we get back to back farewells because Falstaff is pretending to be dead. Um, (laughs) Hal doesn't know that he's pretending and sort of eulogizes him as well. And it sort of for a moment feels like in one fell swoop, he is saying goodbye Mm. to both of the kind of anchors of his childhood, his sort of childhood rival and his childhood Mm. best friend. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. The line that always really haunts me in the Falstaff farewell is when he thinks he's dead, you know, he makes he makes a fat joke at his expense in a sort of rueful way, which he always does. And then he says, I could have better spared a better man, which yeah. is, I think, so perfectly encapsulates how he actually feels about Falstaff. Yeah. Which is like, you know, we needed him in the world, like we needed his mischief. And of course, it turns out that he isn't dead because he can't be killed. And his his mischief is not gone. But um, it is like the sense of suddenly I'm all alone in the world is really sort of like you feel it kind of cataclysmic for Hal for a moment. Yeah. You know? And it's interesting that when he then comes back in the next scene, he's with his brother who we barely know. Like it's like he sort of hastily is putting together these new relationships in this last mm. act, this sense of like, okay, maybe he can sort of buttress himself with a new cohort of companions, but um, it mm. doesn't obviously kind of feel the same. These aren't relationships that have been built to. Yeah, that's true. And And in the sense that like, I mean, I think we've we've gone around and around it in this discussion, but it's like the extraordinary thing about this play is that the relationship, the the this incredibly significant relationship doesn't take place in person until one scene at the end. And then, you know, you have to enter the conflict with Hotspur believing that he's gonna win and not having very much time to react to the fact that he's lost before you sort of, you know, have to arrive at this like kind of pieta shape of Hotspur dead in Hal's arms, you know? Yeah. And I think the other then remarkable thing is that Hal doesn't complete the journey with Falstaff. We sort of get a stark and sudden end of his journey mm. with Hotspur and yet he can't bring himself to kind of fulfill the prophesied rejection of Falstaff, which no, you may have guessed given yet. that there is a part two, but. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, something I was thinking of earlier that I might've said, but also might've just thought I said and then didn't, is that this play and the Henry Ford too as well, this play in particular is amazing at the tension of deferred meetings. Hmm. Yeah. You know, of sort of like, you know, even with like the conflict with his father, like we wait so long before we get that, the conflict with, you know, like this final meeting with Hotspur is such a source of tension through all of the acts that precede it. And it's only as high octane as it is because there is no prior meeting. Yeah. Which is something I think the play does really well. Yeah, I think that it's that. And I think that the sort of tension, mm. it, tension is the right word. It just sort of like, draws you into this relationship and I think gives it a weight and an importance that doesn't have to be gay, but <laughs> is. But is. So we, we warned you that this would be a long one, but at the end of every episode, we usually uh, plan here now live and in person what play we'll be talking about next but in two weeks time we will instead be bringing you a Christmas special so yes. keep an eye out for that um, in the interim you can find us on Instagram yes you can at this Shakespeare is gay or on Twitter at this shakes is gay that's s-h-a-x um, and do please leave a rating or review and subscribe to us on whatever podcast purveying platform you prefer and we'll see you very soon 
Goodbye.